This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. All right, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. I'm Jeff Klein, and Mike Yusin is here with me in the studio. Hello, Jeff. How are you, Mike? I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, I'm, I mean, fantastic. There's oh. no better start to the morning than yeah. uh, with those bells playing behind us there. <laughs> no, I like this because um, however we really feel, I think once we get into that upward cycle, yeah, we're totally. all feeling better. Totally. So this is Leadership in Action, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And I guess a a reminder that we have a new Twitter handle. Whoa! You aware of that, Mike? Uh, no, I I was unaware of that. Yeah. Jeff. So at SXM Business. All right. Pay attention, the, everybody. That's the write new that Twitter down. Handle. Yeah. If you're driving, just maybe chant it to yourself. <laughs> Don't write it. Wouldn't want to cause any accidents. So, Mike, we're uh, we're going to do a pretty interesting show today. Uh, we have a guest coming on in a few minutes who uh, is an expert in crisis management and leadership and communication. I, I happen to know that this is kind of a, a topic that you've studied a little bit. We all study this. Uh, if you, no, uh, I just create the crises, Mike. You, you actually <laughs> oh, study the I, response I, to them. I put the fires out, Jeff. Yeah, is that... yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, well, you know, uh, a test of leadership is can you get through a fire? And so without those tests... Well, where would we be? But here, here's, I think, the the underlying point, if I can make it that uh, that kind of a statement. And that is in a, in a position of responsibility for anything, you've got to communicate. It's just it's it's a it's a baseline. It, it's what you do. Right. So think about China at the moment closing down. Uh, I think it's half a dozen cities. Um, of vital to that closure over this uh, coronavirus issue is effective communication of why the heck are we doing that? Absolutely. And, you know, Mike, um, one of the things I, I've heard you say often on this show is that, well, I've heard you say many things often, but I'm going to I'm gonna play this one straight if I can. <laughs> well, if I say it often, it must be true, Jeff. I do I want to point that out. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, those in positions of responsibility, they, they tend to get the really thorny issues. All the easy ones yeah, can get yeah, settled totally. by, you know, the other people in the organization. But it's it's the particularly hard situations, the hard yeah. decisions that tend to rise up to the top. So I, I'd imagine then effective communication, effective leadership, even that much more important. Yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, it's a really... It's a direct point, and it's worthy of uh, reiteration, and that is um, this show is about taking responsibility, making a difference, whether you're in your community or a healthcare center, university in our case, or maybe even a country, and that is um, you're really there to resolve issues, make decisions, take action, set strategy, um, pave uh, the way forward, and if you're if you're not comfortable with that, you're probably in the wrong occupation. But maybe above all, the more responsibility you take, the tougher the issues are. For the obvious reason, all the easy ones got taken care of by somebody below you. All right. So we know, Mike, that a, a crisis can define a leader. 
can define an organization, and, and that's for good or for bad, right, depending on how it's handled. Take uh, Wells Fargo. We read yesterday that uh, the former chief executive now, a man named uh, Mr. Stump, has been pretty much banished from the banking industry because of uh, his failure as CEO at Wells Fargo to prevent the sales force from going off the rails when they were asked to open up accounts for customers and uh, weren't adequately reminded they had to do that legally and not illegally. For actual customers. For actual customers, yeah, yeah. totally. So um, uh, I guess back to your main point, uh, when we carry responsibility, we really do carry responsibility. And if we're shy, if we're temperamentally, and I'm in kind of in that category personally, uh, and not ready to quickly speak out, uh, we probably got to get over that. Well, our guest today says that whether they realize it or not, executives are chief credibility officers. Are they ever? With organizational mm -hmm. reputations that often rest on their words and actions, especially in these highly visible times of crisis. Um, he's worked with numerous Fortune 500 companies on crisis management and effective communication more generally. Uh, and, and he shares his advice in a new book that we're going to talk about today. So let us bring... Jack Modulesky, uh onto today's program. Jack, how are you? Oh, I'm um, I'm looking for the right word because you gentlemen are great and fantastic. So I'll just say I'm excellent this morning. <laughs> okay, Jack, that was <laughs> excellent. All right, well, Jack, your new book is "Talk Is Chief: <laughs> Leadership, Communication, and Credibility in a High Stakes World." Um, before we get into the content of the book, let me just say a couple more words about you uh, for our listeners' background. Um, Jack Modulesky is founder and president of Jackknife PR, which is a business communications consulting firm in Chicago. Uh, most recently, you were president over at Fleischmann Hillard, where you worked for more than 26 years in executive and international positions. Um, you have more than 35 years of experience with corporate and brand communications programs, including clients like McDonald's, AT&T, General Motors, Chase. The list literally goes on and goes on, on here. Um, and you, in 2015, um, received the Medal Hall of Achievement at Northwestern University. So, Jack, we want to welcome you to the show here and uh, hope you're having a good morning. Absolutely. And thank you. Uh, I'm really going to enjoy this because I wish I was in the studio in, uh, in Philadelphia, but uh, way back in my career, I actually had a, a radio show. So radio is perhaps my favorite medium. All right. Well, we uh, we feel, you know, pretty comfortable. We've been here for a while. But if you have any feedback, especially for Mike at the end, you just bring that bring that live on the radio. Yeah, yeah Jack, and I'll pass it along to Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, got it. All right, Jack. So um, if you would, will you um, let's just set the book up a little bit here. Um, give us a sense of why you wrote Talk is Chief and. You know, what is, what's one of the main points that you really want readers to take away from it? Well, I think I might have said it in the um, introduction of the book. And I experienced this myself because not only was I a communications and public relations and public affairs consultant during my career, but I was also an executive who at one point had responsibility for almost 2,000 people spanning uh, several continents. 
So I had both. Um, I was working closely with CEOs and executives, and I was one myself for a long period of time. And so I quote the famous Winston Churchill in my book saying the difference between mere management and leadership is communication. And uh, I felt um, during my career that what really made uh, good leaders, extraordinary leaders, was their ability to communicate effectively, not just inside their organizations, but to a wide array of constituents and stakeholders, which you absolutely have to do in the modern age uh, today and for the rest of the 21st century, especially as communications technology will continue to evolve very rapidly. So one of the central points of the book is that if you're a leader today, and I know uh, at the opening of the show you were mentioning every type of organization, whether it's a university, a not-for-profit, a corporation, a foundation, uh, a sports team, Mm -hmm. you have to be uh, a very effective communicator, and you're probably going to be spending most of your day in communications without realizing it. Now, I know some leaders do realize that, and they prepare well, and uh, they take every communication opportunity, whether it's speaking to an external audience or inside their organizations or even in a small meeting, they take it very seriously, and they know that you know their words truly matter and their decisions matter. So uh, I think that's a very key point of the book, that it has risen um, to the point where communication, I think, is as important an executive or a leadership responsibility as all the others for operations, financial, uh, and everything else that uh, a leader is responsible for. Mm-hmm. And and Jack, in, in your own career, what hmm. drew you towards communications, public relations, public affairs? Um, how, how did you take your first few steps in that direction? Well, when I was in high school, I was on my school newspaper, so I took an interest in the newspaper business and reporting. Um, When I went on to my university, uh, I thought that I wanted to be a reporter or a writer. Um, I pondered a few other careers like urban planning and so forth, but um, I thought communications is where I wanted to be. And Interestingly enough, my first job was not in journalism. It was in a large advertising agency in New York called Benton and Bowles, which had a great tradition because it was founded by a former uh, or uh, two men who became a governor and a, and a senator, hmm. um, Chester Bowles and Bill Benton. It was a fabulous uh, place. And um, after a couple of years there, I went back to what I really wanted to do, which was journalism. So I practiced journalism for five years. And as mentioned, I had a radio show for about a decade. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, very accidentally, I segued into the public relations agency world when a friend said, you know, we have an opening at our agency, a little firm called Burson Marsteller, and would you be interested in interviewing? Mm -hmm. And I did. And then I said... I think I'll try this for a year, even though my friends on the journalism side were saying, you're going to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I did, and then I spent, you know, three and a half decades uh, with three very fine agencies, including Fleischmann Hillary, where I spent my last 27 years. Got it. Mike, why don't we bring you into the conversation? 
Yeah, Jack. Uh, well, first of all, thanks again for being on the program. Uh, we really enjoyed your book. And I want to go back to a really interesting statement you made a few minutes back on Winston Churchill's statement that the difference between management and leadership often comes down to whether the person in the office, uh, Winston Churchill, Churchill himself, prime minister of Great Britain, uh, it often comes down to communication. And I'll take it to be this. Just want to throw this back at you and see what you think. Uh, if you're the big boss, you can tell people what to do. That's your prerogative. It's built into the role. But if you want people to rise above themselves and do things without you having to tell them to do it and not quit in the middle of a, of a mess and a crisis or whatever uh, perturbs them, then your role in communicating what what you'd like to get done and making that persuasive and making it not only your story but the listener's story, uh, is that not what Churchill was saying when communication is the difference between leadership and management? What do you think? Oh, absolutely. And um, I've been a student of Churchill. I spent five years living in London, so... Um, I, I spent a lot of time thinking and reading Churchill's work. Uh, I think what, what he was so effective at, and of course he was uh, great with uh, prose and poetry, uh, we're familiar with all of his great speeches, but I think he was able to visualize for people what uh, a great end result might be. And uh, if you think about it, uh, Great sports coaches do this, and I think many great corporate leaders do this too, and especially today where uh, presentations tend to be so visual and so dynamic and less reliant on just words and PowerPoint presentations and so <clears> forth. <throat> Giving people uh, a chance to look at what they might accomplish collectively that they don't think they can currently do and I, I, I heard another leader, I can't remember who exactly it was, but they said, you know, the key to leadership is to show people how they can get from point A to point B, which they think might be a big leap or impossible, and convince them and persuade them that they can do it. Uh, I've done it in my career. I've seen many leaders that I've worked with do it in their careers, and I think it all comes down to showing people that we can together rise above all the obstacles and all the challenges here, and we may not do it perfectly, we may not get 100% there, but we can do it. And believe me, my feeling is that people in organizations today want that. I quoted a few surveys in the book, and there's more out there, where people expect so much from leaders in terms of motivation, whether it's their own day-to-day -day boss, or it's the CEO, uh, or for that matter, if it's you know the president of a country. So a lot of it is expected uh, from leaders today in terms of just motivating people to maximize their talents and their ability to work together to solve complex problems and address needs in society and so on. So I think Churchill is a good example of that, but there are plenty of good examples. 
All right, and Jack, I'm going to break in for a second here and remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm in the studio with my good buddy, Mike Useem, and we are talking with Jack Modzaleski, author of Talk is Chief, Leadership, Communication, and Credibility in a High-Stakes World. And Jack, uh, before we lose that very point message to our listeners, my guess is that uh, listeners are probably asking this question. I know I am, as, as you've been talking, how do we get a person like like me? Jeff's already a great speaker. We don't have to worry about him, but uh, me or, or many of the listeners, how do we get somebody from the average presenter? Uh, they're not they're not allergic to being on stage, but they are using methods that are less than fully effective. So thinking very personally, what should listeners know about how to move themselves from an average presenter to a compelling speaker? Well, the easy answer is they can work with any number of great coaches to help them with that. Um, in my career, I did plenty of sessions, uh, countless sessions, working with executives on how they could be more effective, both with uh, media interviews, but also speaking before audiences. And one thing that you should never do is try to emulate others who you think Mm -hmm. are so much better than you. You can learn from them, but don't try to be someone that you're not. Don't try to use language that uh, you're not comfortable with. So you have to continue to be yourself, be authentic, um, speak in ways that you're comfortable with. It all comes down to messages, I think, that uh, people respond to and that resonate with the people you're trying to communicate to. It's not so much being the messenger as it's being someone who is very focused on those receiving the message. And uh, you don't have to be a charismatic, uh, natural speaker. You don't have to be a showman, uh, an Elon Musk type or someone like that to be very effective. I I think an example would be someone like Tim Cook, who, you know, probably in his career came across as being very unassuming and not someone who's going to command a stage, but is very effective in his own way. And there, there are other leaders out there as well. Uh, whether they, you know, be in the political realm or the business realm or, or others. So I think everyone can be improved. I, I think that uh, focusing on what really matters to the audiences, whether it's a group of five or a group of 500, what really is going to cause them to walk away and say, that was worthwhile. That was meaningful. I'm going to take that forward. I'm going to act on that. That's what you want to do. And you can facilitate it with all kinds of ways. Some video, some great visuals. It doesn't have to all come down to words. And I also tell people, try to be concise. Um, leave people wanting more. Don't, don't go out there to give a 30-minute speech when you really should give a 15-minute speech and then have people start asking you questions because you've stimulated their minds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jack, as we're, as we're, you know, really starting to explore the book, uh, and, and the new book, again, is called Talk is Chief, um, 
you know, we, we, we've certainly drawn the connection between leadership and communication. Um, I want to I want to bring the concept of credibility into the conversation too. You've, you've subtitled the book leadership, communication and credibility in a high stakes world. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not going to ask you to make the case for credibility. I feel like that that's probably a little bit self-evident. But but how is it that you're seeing the relationship between leadership and communication and that, you know, essential credibility for leaders? Well, uh, credibility comes down to someone being the, the standard bearer. Uh, and and it's, it's more than one person in any big, complex organization there are a lot of leaders. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was a leader, I told people, you know, my job is to develop more leaders. I, I want, you know, many people in this organization to advance and to become leaders if they have the potential to be that. Mm-hmm. And uh, in any organization, you know, uh, one bad leader um, can cause some real credibility problems, as, as we've seen in many organizations, where someone does something wrong, or someone takes a bad risk, or someone ignores a little problem that turns into a much bigger problem, which could be a crisis. We see that all the time. But I think it really comes down to the person at the top being the chief credibility officer and saying, okay, I'm going to be the person who um, lives our values, does it by example. Uh, When I say something, uh, it has to be true. It can't be uh, stretching the truth beyond belief or beyond uh, the facts. Um, I I think we live in an age today where uh, there are so many ways that a person's statements can be challenged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we see that every day, uh, whether it's inside or outside of organizations. It's and, probably um, on CNN right now. Yes, and, and become, you know, uh, social media chatter. Mm-hmm. Um, there are entire websites devoted to, um, you know, uh, vilifying leaders and uh creating all kinds of uh, misleading and misinformation about uh, their organizations. So the leader has to be both offensive and offensive and defensive, I'm sorry, about Mm -hmm. uh, going out there and saying, this is what my organization stands for. Uh, This is what we expect of our people. Uh, If we don't live up to that, we're going to make sure we do much better the next day and the next day. And, uh, I think that's what credibility comes down to, and it has to be. It has to be in the foundation of the culture of the organization. So that, that's another thing. The leader really has to shape and sustain uh, a culture, especially if it's a very uh, old and successful organization, where uh, you don't want to come in and just change the culture for the sake of changing it. You have to keep building on what has worked and what has been uh, a compass for people for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think leaders who build and sustain strong cultures in their organizations and represent uh, credible communications that is based on strong values in the organization, they tend to be beacons of credibility as well as good communicators. 
And thank you for that, Jack. I, you've you've got a number of examples uh, in the book. Is is there one that comes to mind that that really embodies this this chief credibility officer um, notion? Well, there's there's probably many. Um, yeah. I, I think that uh, any organization where when something goes wrong and they react rapidly and they try to fix the problem without making excuses, whether you know it's a customer incident or it's uh, a temporary product failure or a distribution or delivery failure. You know, you go back to some of the great founders of companies, uh, Sam Walton at Walmart and Ray Kroc at McDonald's. I did a lot of work with McDonald's. I did some with uh, Walmart. Um, even after they passed away, their systems and uh, the cultural imperatives that they established lived on um, and still do in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the modern entrepreneurs like <clears throat> Howard Schultz at Starbucks and uh, several others, um, I think they've been uh, very good at doing that very thing. Mm-hmm. And really, the, I think exactly what you're describing, uh, our, our colleague here at Wharton, Adam Grant, had said something uh, very similarly recently. And he, his comment was, uh, a leader's success is you know, usually the, the good that people around him or her do while um, you know, he or she is in office. Um, a leader's legacy is about that good continuing after they've gone. And I, I think that's, um, you know, you're, you're pointing to the kinds of values and cultures and systems and processes um, that, that can really be established by strong leadership and strong communication, but then, uh, you know, live on even beyond the tenure of a particular executive. Yes, yes. And, and I've worked with organizations where they're continually remembering and quoting founders and past CEOs yeah. uh, about good business practices and just good ways of doing business as a, 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 collect, a collection of you know people, whether it be across the world or whatever, wherever. Now, I think one of the big challenges that I also mention in the book is uh, trying to lead organizations that span the world or span, you know, many countries, many continents, where there are many microcultures. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want one organizational culture built on uh, organiz- strong organizational values and a sense of legacy and storytelling and all of that. But uh, it's going to be a little different in Japan. It's going to be different in Spain. It's going to be different in Russia. And it's going to be different in South America. So having the, the nimble abilities as a leader to communicate and also to inspire and create that aura of credibility in multiple places uh, where people's first language may not be English and their ways of doing things and their customs might be a little different than we do in the United States, that's a big challenge. Our guest this hour is Jack Modulewski, who is the author of Talk is Chief, Leadership, Communication, and Credibility in a High-Stakes World. Jack's the former president at Fleischman Hillard and is founder and president of Jackknife PR, a business communications consulting firm in Chicago. Mike. 
Jack, I'm going to jump into one of the accounts that you have laid out in one of your chapters of your book, <laughs> Talk as Chief, and that is a, an account about a speech that David Rubenstein delivered to the Economic Club of Chicago a couple of years ago. David Rubenstein uh, has actually been on our radio program. We've had him as a, a guest, an amazing person in many regards, including the fact that he was a, a founder and then co-CEO at Carlyle Group, which is one of the world's biggest private equity firms. He's given a speech, though, at the Economic Club in Chicago a couple of years back and was asked about uh, any mistakes he might have made in his investing career, and he referred to a request that came in from his son-in-law. Uh, if you could retell that story a bit. And then he also had a request from somebody that wanted to acquire a couple books in exchange for a ownership stake in his firm. And if you could just walk us through those two accounts and then help us understand why uh, they ended up in your book. And my guess is many people leaving the economic club that, that day probably remember these stories as much as anything David said on stage. So it really points to what makes for a, a impactful storytelling. Well, first of all, I should say that uh, shortly after I heard him speak in Chicago, I actually visited Carlisle in Washington, D.C., and was visiting someone there and commented on uh, how effective the speech was and how he got a standing ovation. And he said, well, you know, he works very, very hard at this. Um, he spent a lot of time over the years uh, getting his style down and being able to almost get, get up and give a monologue without any notes and very entertaining. And so I just picked a couple of stories. He had a lot of other funny things and uh, important stories to share that evening, but uh, he did he did get the question, you know, have you made any mistakes in your great career? And one of the stories he told was that um, as he uh, acquired some of his wealth, he thought that what he really needed to do was give some of that back to uh, his country. He's very patriotic, and we all know that he's done some major, um, some major philanthropic initiatives, uh, including you know restoring the Washington Monument and so forth. So uh, he decided that uh, he was going to buy a copy of uh, the Magna Carta, and there are, I think there was only one or two that were actually in circulation, were not in museums, and. Uh, donate that to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. And so um, as, uh, as, um, <laughs> as that story goes, um, um, and excuse me for a second, I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to re recollect exactly how I wrote it in the book. Um, well, you, Give me you, a little prompt here. Yeah, you well, you mentioned uh, as a follow-on to the Magna Carta purchase, uh, just that was a, a very good decision, no mistake in that, that he uh, was then approached by uh, his son-in-law about a college student um, that the son-in-law knew who had this great idea for a startup. And uh, David said, look, 
in my experience, college startups never work. I'm going to take a pass. I don't want to talk to your, uh, to my son-in-law's uh, friend who turned out to be named uh, Mark Zuckerberg. So exactly, exactly. And um, I think he went on to say that um, at the time, you know, he could have probably he could have probably uh, purchased. Um, a big stake, a huge stake yep. in what eventually became Amazon. Um, no, I'm, I'm jumping to another story. There. Yeah, yeah, this is the uh, well, the reference to Jeff Bezos, who had asked uh, David to, uh, if, as I recall it, just to fill in that uh, particular point, as I recall, Jeff Bezos said, kind of an unknown guy at the time, I'd like to buy some books that one of your yeah. portfolio companies had, and and. David Rubenstein said, well, no. And then uh, Bezos said, well, look, I'll give you a third of the equity in my company uh, in exchange for the books. And David again said no. So we kind of know where that one went to. Yes, yes. And and forgive me, I'm I'm mixing up the two stories. I have to go back and reread my whole book again. But yes, uh, the Zuckerberg story was very interesting in that he had a chance to uh, become a very early investor in what became Facebook uh, through his uh, son-in-law's friendship with Mark Zuckerberg, which yep. was actually at uh, Phillips Exeter. Yes. And then uh, the other story about um, the opportunity to become uh, a major, I think, a one-third owner in what eventually became Amazon. And he said he did well with Amazon, but uh, mm-hmm. he could have done so much better. So, Jack, let me turn that into the following question, and, and that is for a person listening here who's going to be on stage with their enterprise or their community. Help us understand when you want to be, in a sense, self-effacing. Here are the mistakes I made without overdoing it. And I say that because my guess is when people left the economic club that evening after the speech, they forgot many words of the speech, but they probably are going home and telling their, their partner uh, this reference to Mark Zuckerberg and to Jeff Bezos. So those stories sometimes stand, really stand out uh, where things went wrong. What, what's your guidance for the use of when things go wrong to tell people a little bit about you and to make the ideas in the room extremely indelible and memorable? Yes. Well, first of all, you're trying to connect with other human beings, and so you have to do it in a, in a, in a human way sort of way, and uh, this goes back to the point of credibility. I think that people who have uh, maximum credibility in those situations are not afraid to admit uh, not only their successes, but some of the mistakes that they've made, and to show a lot of humility in doing it. And and David was great at that, and I've seen others do that. You know, when, when someone gets up and makes a speech, whether it be to uh, an audience like an economic club in a city or civic leaders, um, usually, you know, within a day or two, there's very little that people remember, but they will remember the stories. Yes. And so if it's an instructive story about how an organization can rise above a challenge and do something great, or if it's, you know, some of the stories that David told, and he told other stories as well about, you know, we're, we're not perfect as leaders. We might have a great successful run, but we make some mistakes along the way. Yeah. Um, I think that's what people 
connect with. And that, that's what you're trying to do. If you're standing up in front of 500 or 1,000 people, or if you're on television, CNN or CNBC, you're really trying to connect with people. And the best way to do it is to tell a story or give examples where the person listening says, you know, I could have been in that situation as well. Yep. That is something I'll keep in mind when that happens to me or comes my way. So, Jack, before I throw it back at Jeff here, just one more comment for your reaction, and that is it's a little bit ironic here. Sometimes in describing our setbacks, thus we fear the people will think less of us. They actually think more of us for being willing to express in public a setback, certainly one that you learned from. So uh I guess my question is, do, do you agree with the use of, I don't know, irony or self-effacing stories as a way in which you actually build credibility? Or is that is that dangerous ground to be on? What do you think? Well, I would never overdo it because, again, people expect leaders to lead them and not make a lot of mistakes, especially yep. with respect to their own organizations. But admitting a few from time to time does humanize them. And in today's world, leaders have to be, uh, they have to come across not as icons, but as human beings uh, with a lot of responsibility, trying to motivate thousands of people. And it all comes down to trust. You know, um, do you trust your leader in your organization? And when we're talking a little bit about credibility, I think where leaders have problems with credibility is when they tell one audience something and people back at the company say, well, wait a second, you know, <laughs> he or she's getting way ahead of us, or we know for a fact that we can't do that in the next quarter or in the next year. So, you know, with credibility must come a lot of consistency in the leader's narrative to many different audiences. Jack, a quick summary point then over, Jeff, as I said before, see if the statement sounds largely true. When you speak in a position of responsibility, you're kind of speaking to everybody. If it's in business, to equity analysts, to investors, employees, customers, even if, you, if you're only in a room with 25 customers, and thus being self-conscious about the message that's going way beyond the walls in the room, especially with Twitter these days, seems like something you would advise. What do you think? I think it was Ben Franklin, uh, your hero from Philadelphia, who once Indeed. said, uh, three can keep a secret if two are dead. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say yeah. that only because uh, it could be a, a conversation with two other people uh, or 2,000 people. And, yes, leaders have to be very mindful that everything that they say in any context, in any situation, private or public, uh, can, you know, be taken out of context or be misinterpreted or just be out there in the public domain. And, and we see that all the time. So, and it'll, you know, it'll end up in social media channels. It'll end up in chatter within the organization. And today's complex organizations have many internal networks for uh, internal communication. So, yes, you have to take that very seriously. Yep. And, of course, you know, we've seen examples of that. Uh, Ken Fisher's issue several months ago saying something, and that, you know, turned into a major commercial issue, losing customer business and so forth. So, 
anyway, I absolutely yeah. agree with that. Yep. Well, let me remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein, and I'm here in the studio with Mike Useem. And our guest today is Jack Modulesky, who is author of the new book, Talk is Chief, Leadership, Communication, and Credibility in a High-Stakes World. Um, Jack, as as I've been listening to this part of the conversation um, and, and connecting back to a comment you made right before the break about... Uh, you know, the the role of stories and the role of communication for an organization operating in, in multiple countries, multiple cultures, et cetera. Um, I, I've been sitting here thinking and, and, and wanting to ask, as, as a communicator, as uh, a leader who is out delivering a consistent message, um, but doing it as, as you were describing in different environments, in different contexts, what advice do you have about how to check that the message you think you're communicating is the message that is being heard? Well, you have to have trusted people in the places where you're communicating, whether it be other countries or it could even be other cities in the United States, who will give you that sort of feedback. Mm. I, I think leaders... Um, who are very smart about this are always asking people around them, whether it's on their communications team or on their leadership team, you know, all right, I just did that meeting. What are you hearing? Mm -hmm. Uh, Did people really respond to what I was saying? Did they get it? Uh, What are they going to do next? How do we reinforce the message? But doing that in other countries, um, you know, whether you're the leader of a European country, a company or a Chinese company doing it in other parts of the world or an American company, you really have to have people on the ground that you trust and will tell you, you know what, this is the best way to deliver those messages in this type of uh, environment. Um, In some cases, it's better to walk around and talk to people rather than assemble them in a conference room Mm. or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, how to do it on factory floors, how to do it in research laboratories. So um, because in different cultures, it's always going to be nuanced. And I learned myself when I spent five years uh, leading Fleischmann Hillard in Europe and the Middle East and Africa that you can make a lot of mistakes and gaffes speaking to audiences in different countries. And, And I made my fair share and learned by them. But at the end of the day, what you really learn and what you can get good at as a leader is that um, no matter what their culture and their language is, uh, there are things that human beings have in common. Mm-hmm. And if you can touch them in those ways, if you can speak to them in those ways and really understand you know, what's going to motivate them to do what you ask or what you suggest, then you'll accomplish a lot. Now, Jack, the really interesting point that um, I hadn't really thought about before, and that is it's not just the content of the message, but it's it's the strategy for delivering it as well. And so what might work, um, you know, in a town hall type of format uh, in, in one kind of culture uh, might be better delivered in, you know, I'm, I'm hearing in smaller groups or in more informal conversations right. uh, in another 
And, and I want to link that a little bit to uh, a, another topic that that you raise frequently in the book, and, and that's you know the the role of leadership and communication within crisis. And and mm-hmm. you know, so I I I'd love if you could help us understand um, what are some of the fundamental rules for a leader who is now trying to manage through and communicate about a crisis? Uh, Well, I think in the book I actually... uh called them the Ten Commandments of Crisis Management, but and I'm not going to go through ten of them. Mm-hmm. But the, the very first thing is, um, before a crisis ever hits, I, I emphasize risk management in the book. And, yeah. you know, is, is the organization prepared? Uh, you're never perfectly prepared, but are, are you su- sufficiently prepared to act very quickly? And, of course, you know, when something happens, whether it's a, a physical problem, an explosion at a plant, a shooting, anything like that, um, then you have to respond very quickly, you know, not in days, not even in hours, but in minutes. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the leader has to be very, very assertive and aggressive with uh, his or her team about getting to the truth and getting to the facts because there are so many other people out there commenting and speculating and providing their own facts that fill in that void before people really know what happened and what caused the problem and how is it going to be solved and how quickly will it be solved. So uh, another thing that the leader has to do is to decide, you know, is this totally our responsibility. Are we, are we at fault here? And uh, as I said in the book, to take responsibility and to own the crisis in the sense that you can't start pointing fingers at others and saying, well, this is an industry-wide problem. It just happened to happen to us. Or this was a supply, a supply chain problem in China or Indonesia. And you know, we'll get back to you on what really happened there. I mean, you have to take responsibility for your own problems. And uh, you you have to try to control the 24-7 communications agenda to the best of your ability. It almost sounds like an impossible task, but that means that you have to have people who are ready to respond, uh, respond to new questions that are coming up all the time, and yet come back to what maybe some of the core messages are about what you know, what you're doing about the problem, how you're going to overcome it, how you're going to prevent it from happening again. Because if it is something that constitutes or uh, poses a public health problem or a potential harm to people, people want to know what are you doing to address it, maybe in league with others, with public safety officials, and uh, will they be out of harm's way? And how are you going to prevent it from ever happening again? So Jack, speed really does matter. Uh, thank you on that. And just to ask a very pragmatic final question here from me, I had a former chief executive come into one of our programs a couple of years ago, and he came to the to the setting with his executive coach. And I'll never forget the moment just after the speech was concluded by the former CEO. He walked over 
didn't intend for me to hear this, but I uh, at some I was close by. I did hear the chief executive turned to his executive coach and said, "Give me uh, two or three ways I could have improved my presentation." My question at the point. Uh, now, over, a question over to you is, in giving feedback in your role as a professional, uh, is it tactically more effective to literally, on the spot, say, here's what worked, here's what didn't work, or to give the person a little breather and, and come to that individual, in this case, a former CEO, a day or two later? So what, what's your experience when uh, a person like Jeff or me could most be most ready to absorb uh, critical feedback? You know, Mike, I have to say it really depends on the individual that you're coaching or counseling. I've had people want immediate feedback, walking out of a situation, a meeting or a media interview and saying, how did I do? What could I have done better? Uh, I need a better answer to that type of question. Why Mm -hmm. didn't we anticipate that? And then others who walk out and they're either frustrated or their energy has been sapped, and you have to give them some time to just reflect on it themselves and then come back to them later, whether it's the next day or so. But you should always give that sort of feedback because you're a witness to it, and that's your job. If if a person can perform better the next time, and usually whether it's a crisis situation or it's a CEO going out and talking about, a new product launch or something that the company is doing in positive ways, they're going to do it over and over again. So um, uh, sometimes, you know, they get in a rut and the message gets a little repetitive and you have to refresh it and you have to restore their energy and give them a little boost. So there's different ways of doing it, but I think it depends on the individual that you're working with. That's great. All right, Jack, we uh, somehow have, uh, we seem to have, Reach the end of our hour here. So we want to say thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, absolutely. And then how can listeners find more out about the book and learn more about the work that you're doing? Well, if they're interested in the book, uh, they can just Google uh, the book on Amazon or Simon & Schuster, who is distributing it. And you've already given the title, Talk is Chief, Leadership, Communication, and Credibility in a High-Stakes World. Um, or uh, they can go to my website, which is uh, www.jackknifepr.com, and they can get a little more information there as well. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Jack. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. You guys do a really great program. All right. Service to a lot of leaders and potential leaders. Jack, thank you. Great to have you on the program indeed. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. Thank you. And and Mike, it seems like right at the end there, he he punted on the the critical feedback he was going to give you. Uh, we'll we'll have to yeah. bring him, we'll have well, to bring him back on the show. It, it was our timing. We didn't allow time to actually. <laughs> thank goodness, in my case. All right. Well, we want to thank uh, all of our listeners for joining us as well. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Be sure to follow our show on our new Twitter handle at SXM Business. That's at SXM Business. Once again, a special thank you to our guest, Jack Modulewski, uh, and his new book, Talk is Chief, Leadership, Communications, Credibility in a High-Stakes World. Uh, I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, 
I'm Jeff Klein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 